This is Reynolds Podcast, The Creative Mindset. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Creative Mindset, a podcast about what the future holds at the intersection of creativity and technology. I am Reina Moto, the founding partner of IONCO, a global innovation firm based in New York and Tokyo. As we talk with various guests on this show, there's an underlying theme in all of the conversations we have, and that is a link between creativity and leadership. Creativity is a prerequisite for leadership, and I'm very excited to share this conversation with you today. The guest is Greg Hoffman, the former chief marketing officer of Nike. As a 27 year veteran at Nike who rose through the ranks from design intern to chief marketing officer, Greg knows a thing or two about how the brand has retained its iconic status. Since retiring from Nike in 2020, Greg has had the chance to reflect on his illustrious career, and in his recent book, Emotion by Design, he shares valuable lessons from his experience spearheading the brand storytelling, consumer experience, and brand strategies. The book has been translated into 14 different languages, so I encourage everybody around the world to pick up a copy. It's written as a sequence of professional and personal stories, so it's a very natural read as a business book. Today, Greg spends his time guiding Fortune 500 companies, as well as startups and nonprofits, on how to drive business growth, strengthen their brands, and achieve social impact through his brand advisory group, Modern Arena. He also imparts his wisdom to students in his role as a branding instructor at the University of Oregon's Lanquist College of Business. My conversation with Greg was one of the most inspiring conversations I've had, and I think you really like both part one and part two. In part one, I talked with him about his personal background and upbringing, then how he made his way into a leadership role at one of the most innovative and respected companies in the world. So let's get started. Greg, good to see you. Good to see you as well. Coming in from、uh, Portland, Oregon, in the Pacific Northwest today. I think we've met a few times in meetings, but it's not like we know each other that well. So I appreciate you、uh, responding to my, my random、uh, message over in- Instagram. Yeah, well, my pleasure. It's always a privilege to talk to people that run in the same circles and are passionate about the same. Disciplines and things around the world that I am. Yeah. I would like to start off with my episode of meeting you for the first time. And I don't know if you, I don't think you would remember this. It was back in 2001 or 2002.、Um, I started working on Nike in 2001. So I think you were uh, almost uh, a decade into your tenure at,、uh, at Nike.、Mm-hmm. And back then I was a, a designer in my 20s. And I was at, yeah, I was at our GA. And one of the first projects that I worked on was redesigning Nike.com. Nice. And yeah, back in probably 99 or 2000. Yeah, around that time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I was a young designer at,、uh, at RGA and、um, yeah, happened to meet you for the first time. And I remember, you know, who is this、um, good looking guy? You know, you had an aura about yourself. And I was,、uh, yeah, I was in awe, you know, at,、uh, at that young age. And you must have been your. Early 30s, I would imagine? Yeah, well, I, I was an int- graphic design intern in 1992. I started,、right. started designing logos, basically. That was my first role there.、Mm-hmm. But by 2000, I was now managing the very team I had been interning for. Right. I had to learn a lot on the fly, right?、Mm. I had not managed people before. Right. So here I was 
probably when we met for the first time, I was just starting my journey as someone who is actually responsible and accountable for growing a team. Yeah. So in the book, you mentioned about how you went to talk to your boss and you know, you know your boss was leaving and it was before he left, but you basically asked for his job, correct? That is correct. Yeah. Not sure, not sure where I got the courage at that time. <laughs> Yeah. And, um, you know, you must have been in your late 20s, early 30s, and that's relatively young to be leading. And how big was the team at the time that you, you took over? The team was responsible for the visual identity yeah. of the brand, yeah. right? right? And uh, also the experience of the brand in built environments. Mm -hmm. So whether it's retail stores or events, etc. So you not only had a team there in Oregon, but you also had teams in Shanghai and Amsterdam. Right. So it was a fairly large team. Yeah. And um, but hey, at the end of the day, being in an environment of where risk taking uh, and and jumping into situations where you don't have all the answers, right, but right, you're right. willing to learn. So I, I guess I built up that level of both confidence as well as wanting to to you know find out what i had mm -hmm. just like i think a lot of athletes do right yeah and and so that's kind of how i found my way into that position yeah and and of course never left right 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 could you talk briefly about the team that you were um how it was structured you know you mentioned about some of the roles that you've had and uh, uh what your remit was within uh or for the team but within within uh, within nike Sure. Well, just a, a brief history, maybe, on yeah. the teams that were responsible for building the brand identity at Nike over the years. Mm -hmm. And so when I started as an intern, that team was called Image Design, mm -hmm. right? So we were responsible for, but it was a bit limiting when you think of what that title means mm -hmm. that you're, because we weren't just responsible for the image of the brand. Mm -hmm. There was so much more than that. Now, with that said, when you think of in branding terms, when you think of the brand image, hmm. it's never just about the visual image of a brand, right? Hmm. Every different output from a brand forms that image and that feeling of the brand. And so essentially, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of what we're doing is doing that and connecting the dots as well. Mm -hmm. So when I took over that job, it was called communication design. Mm -hmm. Right. So we had evolved and started to understand that, that at the end of the day, what we were doing ultimately, regardless of what the medium was, was telling stories. Mm -hmm. Right. Communicating the values and ideals of this company, Nike. But you know what? That still felt limiting as a title. Mm -hmm. So one of the first things. I worked on with the team was we need to involve the identity of the group. And that's how we came to be called brand design. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, you're designing all the different expressions, the outputs and the experiences that a customer is having with the brand. So brand design seemed to be appropriate. Mm -hmm. And the word design, of course, is like, 
the the largest definition of design that you can think of, right? Right. Because you're designing strategies and plans as well as designing the voice and the identity and the feeling of the brand as well. Yeah. So when you were when you started to manage and you know you were managing many people, multiple projects at the time. And I remember I was the beneficiary of some of the work that uh, that you had done personally, the Sharks logo. That's right. Yeah, I was on the receiving end of the logo that you designed and implemented on the web. Well, that's incredible. You know, as I said, I started yeah. my career at Nike as an intern designing logos. Mm -hmm. And then the last logo I officially designed was the Shocks logo. Oh, that was the, the last logo that you designed. Yeah. And because at that point, I was starting to manage larger teams. Right, right. And it, and it didn't make sense. And at the end of the day, you've, you've got to empower the team to you know, find those solutions and dream about the future and what's next. And so, but what's unique about that story around the Shocks logo for this revolutionary new outsole and midsole technology that Nike brought to the world right. is that was the very first sketch that I did. Right, right. But I didn't know that was going to be the logo. And then we went out and we hired two different design firms hmm. to design around 80 different logos. Right. And ultimately, when we were going through the process and trying to figure out what logo really was going to communicate both the benefit, the technology, and the pursuit of what this product would allow you to do. And that's where we kept going back to that original sketch and ultimately that is what we went with. So let me run with that story because I think it's it tells a few different aspects of making something, but also creative leadership. And just to get the the timing um, straight, so you said it was the last logo that you designed yourself specifically, and you were uh, starting to lead a much much larger team. So you know, your job is not to do the hands-on design, but your job is to form teams, create teams, hire people, uh, and direct the teams to execute a certain uh, certain vision. Uh, for almost every product that Nike would put out, you would create a visual identity for that, particularly, you know, like a temple product like Nike Shocks. That's right. Right? You would create a uh, visual identity and almost create a mini brand around it yeah. to make it recognizable. Um, Nike Shocks is the spring technology so that there's a lot of cushioning at the bottom of the shoe. And the logo that you designed has two bars, if I remember, two bars at the bottom and top. Yeah. And then there's that little Z-like or S-like. Um, That's right. So that it visually represents the springy shock absorbing uh, system that the shoe had used that technology to make it possible. But the part that I got curious about, that was one of the first sketches that you had done. You had hired two additional firms to execute it, but then for you or somebody to say, you know what, we should go back to the first one, even though we've come, we've done eighty different versions. Tell us about what that what that's like, and how do you manage the egos of designers and especially outside design firms? You know, they might they may not have appreciated, right? <laughs> well, that's a great question. Not only that, but managing my own ego. Right. And making sure that I, you know, because at the end of the day, a great team, you do need self-confidence, but you also need self-awareness and selflessness. Right. Those different characteristics coming together 
ultimately are going to allow you to create the level of teamwork that I think you need to put new thoughts, new concepts and innovations into the world that people haven't seen before. So in this case, one is just to have the uh, discipline to want to create a variety of, because hey, at the end of the day, you have to make sure that your branding and your brand identity and your communication is as innovative mm -hmm. as the innovation and the product itself. It's the respect you need to give to that product, mm -hmm. right? So, which means you need a wide fairway of solutions that you're exploring. So then you can come back together as a team and really put that up on the wall and start to go through that editing process. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to get to that point if you do one solution and it's not an objective process and you say, this is good enough and we need to move forward now. And I always believed in a continuum of solutions that you could really as a team edit down to three, right? And at the end of the day, we got to three solutions. Mm. And yes, the spring solution that I had created was one of those, but there was also two other strong solutions. Mm. And so we started to shop those around and present those to stakeholders mm. uh, around the company. And ultimately, the votes kept going back to that first solution. So, you know, the worst situation would have been me saying, well, this is clearly the best solution because I did it. Right, right. Like that's really poor leadership, okay? <laughs> so you, in some cases, great leadership is allowing room for other voices in the room to come forward, especially, quite frankly, the quiet voices. Because hmm. oftentimes they're observing and picking up details that the loudest voices in the room are not. And so it's making space and making sure you have that diverse team in the room so you can get different points of view, right? Mm. And quite frankly, those different points of view are forged by unique perspectives from different life experiences. Mm. So I've always believed in that, right? And so Shocks really represented that. And what's great about that launch back in 2000 is every single aspect of that innovation launch was disruptive and defied convention. Hmm. All of the advertising that Widening Kennedy did hmm. around that innovation was highly creative and, in my uh, you know biased opinion, very profound in a positive way. And so, um, and then it helped, of course, that Vince Carter, the amazing. NBA basketball player at that time yes. dunked over a seven foot player yes. in the Olympics with the shocks sneaker on. Mm -hmm. You cannot script. There's no commercial you could script that could equal how amazing that was to see. So uh, all the stars aligned with that launch. Can you talk to us a little bit about other elements of the launch and what you did to create the excitement uh, about the product, but also the athlete and other, uh, other elements of the, the launch campaign? You're, you get to start with such rich territory when you have a product hmm. that shows visible innovation. You can actually see the technology mm -hmm. and you can actually 
in your mind visualizing jumping higher, mm -hmm. right? When you put this sneaker on because it's got these visible shocks in mm -hmm. it. So our job in any different medium was to ensure that we were reinforcing that idea of responsiveness, right? Mm -hmm. And that, you know, this explosive speed or explosive vertical leap, whatever you call. So even the retail presentation mm -hmm. uh, and how we displayed the shoe, we wanted to essentially make sure that that shoe was in some ways floating on air. Mm -hmm. Like we have liftoff, if you will. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just, it couldn't just be sneakers on the wall, right. Or on a table. Mm -hmm. Because again, as I said, the way you express the story of the product and the benefits has to be as innovative as the way the product was designed. Mm -hmm. And so we designed these very engaging, creative uh, table and wall displays that allowed the product to look like it had just propelled into the air, if you will. Hmm. Right. Hmm. And then there's the legendary famous Winding Kennedy streaker commercial. Right. So, it, yeah. So it, it looks like the this incredible football match has been interrupted. Yes. And the problem is security. No one can catch this individual this streaker right who's running around without clothes on because he's wearing the nike shocks right 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 so it's pretty genius and incredibly distinctive hmm. you know in a crowded space you know that's a spot that's a commercial that really stood out at hmm. the time hmm. very clever and so at the end of the day you know great story of storytelling of course starts with finding a unique insight or truth and then hmm. revealing that in a very profound way. Yeah, yeah. And um, that's certainly what the creative teams, both inside Nike as well as the agency partners, did. And the commercial that you mentioned, the Streaker commercial, and again, I remember it because I was on the receiving end of that as well as part of the, the team. And there was the triangle of your team, my team at Dargier, and the team at Dwight and Kennedy. And we would often collaborate with the, the creatives of, of White and Kennedy. And I remember talking, I think his name was Jonathan. He was a copywriter. And about a year before that, I remember that he had uh, pitched a script for a running campaign where there were naked runners, completely naked from head to toe, completely yeah. naked, only wearing shoes. That was shut down. And then like a year later, I saw the script in a different context for a different product. And in this case, the famous streaker uh, script where, like you said, you know, this, if I might say so, chubby naked guy with, you know, the scarf around his neck. Yeah. He runs on to in a stadium. He runs on to the pitch when, uh, when a game is happening and nobody can catch him because he's wearing uh, Nike, Nike shocks. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's that. I mean, a lot of the stories that you, you, talked about and you told in the book i i knew about 80 to almost 90 percent but it was great to hear the back background uh story of those campaigns yeah yeah well that particular commercial right mm. is is the definition of being able to take risks and not playing it safe yeah yeah and that's the role oftentimes of an agency partner mm. Mm. is to to really push a brand yeah to go beyond what's safe mm. and be able to 
you know, bring things into the world that, you know, not only engage customers uh, on an emotional level, but really take an entire category uh, to someplace new or even, you know, um, really uh, take your place in the cultural conversation. Yeah. Right. Because you've introduced something that deserves to be talked about. Yeah. You know, like like I say in the book, um, any great story deserves to be remembered. Yeah. Not forgotten, right? Dare to be remembered. That's 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 right. Right. If you had to pick one piece of work, your work, as your hey, this is if you could only take one piece of work to your to your grave, what would it be? Wow, that I was a part of or that you had a, a significant hand in. Man, I you know, I that's a that's a <laughs> tough, tough question. Yes. Right. Uh, yes, I know. Yeah, but I cause cause it's a team sport right. uh on that, right? Creativity is theme sport, right? Yeah, yeah, and uh, so so success should be shared by by everyone uh, on that. So, man, you you really put me on the spot there. And then the other thing here, yes, is I'm ne- like a lot of I think creative types. I'm never satisfied. Ultimately, you're always looking <laughs> back on, you know, what else could have been could have been done uh, on that, but. Um, so I was just really lucky to work on a, I guess, a timeline of just uh, memorable moments. But I do have, a, I would say, a, an affinity for a lot of the football work from the '90s mm-hmm. because it was at a time where we were really far away from being in first place. Oh, Nike as a brand within the football category. Yeah, yeah, in football. Yeah, and so for the. The fact that my real big first shot was uh, the, you know, the fact that I got to do all of the brand design work for the 1994 World Cup. Mm. Um, If you're asking me, like, what maybe uh, made everyone kind of take notice, it was that moment. Okay. I'll take that 1994 brand World Cup. Yeah. So... At the beginning of the book, you talk a little bit about your background and how you come from a mixed race background and you were adopted. Yeah. And then I actually, you you don't talk about in the book about your background. You touch upon it at the beginning. You don't talk about it throughout. And then the I think the, the second to the last chapter or the last chapter, you talk about how you get reconnected with your, uh, with your sister. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, that I have to say, because the stories that I read in the book, I knew most of them. And it was interesting to hear the backstory that I didn't know. And some things I knew and sort of a lot of the characters I knew connecting the dots. Right. But the last two chapters where you talk about your background and how you rediscover yourself was that part was really emotional uh, to me in a, in a very unexpected way. So could you talk a little bit about the fact that you come from a, an unusual background and also a, a minority background? Sure. Was there ever a moment where you felt that was working against you? And, you know, I have my own shares of, of those types of stories, but I'd love to hear a little bit about your personal and professional challenges and how you've uh, overcome those. Yeah, no, look, uh, uh, our early experiences shape so much of who we are, right? And uh, certainly in the 
industries and disciplines of marketing and design and innovation where so much your superpowers are the way you see, feel, and hear the world around you, right? And so much of that sight and your ability to feel and listen is forged by those early life experiences. And so for me, oftentimes, while a lot of my experiences growing up were quite challenging, oftentimes being the only person of color in the room, and quite frankly, for years, right? Both in school and outside, even in my home life. And so, uh, but ultimately, that's started to become an advantage, certainly in a professional sense, because I think it increased my ability to lead with empathy. Hmm. Um, when you do feel like you're excluded, right, or you're on the outside, you know, you're probably going to most likely see others that are in the same situation. You're going to be tuned in maybe to people that face barriers and walls uh, and don't have that invitation, right? So when I got to Nike, you know, that uh, started to be something that was actually an advantage hmm. because maybe I had had some of those experiences and that I worked with a brand that was open to reaching out, you know, at the end of the day to work at a brand that believed every person on earth was an athlete, no matter your skill level, your body type or your age, what have you, you're an athlete. And our job was to invite everyone especially people that didn't see themselves as athletes on that movement. And so I think because of those different experiences, um, I had a sensitivity and an empathy for communities that maybe uh, weren't, didn't see themselves in the story, didn't see themselves on that journey, right? And even within Nike, a lot of my work in the Black Employee Network was, and the work I do now, is to try to create better representation within the fields and industries that I love. Mm. Again, traditionally, marketing and design and advertising don't have a very good, diverse representation mm -hmm. for a long time. And all you have to do is look at the history of the design, the design books, um, history of advertising, history of marketing. It's very rare that you're going to see faces and people that look like you. Right. Mm -hmm. And when I say that, I mean, all aspects of diversity and certainly within my role over the years at Nike, it was focused on, uh, you know, um, black and brown employees on that. So in any event, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it it was, you know, the other thing about the 70s and early 80s that I, I grew up in is it was noble to have this idea and this goal of never seeing color. Like, okay, so if that's what we're preaching to everyone and to kids, like, you know, love sees no color. Well, that's uh, an inspirational and aspirational vision of the future and a way to behave. The problem with that is the whole point of empathy hmm. is imagining and putting yourself in the shoes 
of your neighbor, your peer, the person you're shoulder and shoulder to, and realizing that the way you're walking through life is not the same way they walk through life, right? Mm. And so unfortunately, I didn't have people to talk to about what I was experiencing, and particularly around racism Mm -hmm. as I grew up, right? And I'm thankful that we are in a moment in time in a day where there are as open conversations and avenues where people can express how they feel. Children can express how they feel. And quite frankly, it wasn't until really recently with the innovations of DNA testing mm-hmm. and the, the advent of companies like 23andMe and Ancestry.com, where people were even talking about what it meant to be adopted, mm. right? I think, you know, growing up, it was, you should just simply be thankful, right? Hmm. Uh, but there's a lot going on, hmm. you know, when, when you are adopted and some things can be uh, verbalized and th- some things are in your subconscious, I guess, hmm. as an adoptee, right? But today we're in a, a point in time where people can talk about what those experiences are, what the highs and lows are. And not feel that that they are not being thankful, right? Mm. Um, because this the conversation around adoption shouldn't be that you've been saved, mm. <laughs> okay? <laughs> right? Uh, on that, and and so it should be much more layered than that mm. because there's a lot that's that happens. And so, of course, yes, I am. I received the gift two years ago of ultimately meeting. Uh, my birth families for the first time, right? Mm. And uh, not every adoptee necessarily gets that chance or even wants that chance. And quite frankly, the percentage of reuniting parents to children, right, uh, is in terms of, of finding your, your, uh, your biological parents, oftentimes they're not pleasant reunions too. Mm. So you have to take that into account. So it's just been a huge bonus for me to all of a sudden have these two new families in my life with such positive rewards. Mm. Right. Yeah. And then what you start to see, which is incredible, but the idea that I got my graphic design degree and I went to Minnetonka high school and my birth sensor went to Minnetonka High School and got a graphic design degree, right? So we don't know, we didn't know each other. Of course we didn't, but you start to figure out, wow, this runs in the family. So ultimately, you know, that last chapter is really about nature and nurture and that maybe I had this in me, right? These passions and talents in the artistic realm But I was also in an environment with my adoptive parents, right, Um, where they pulled that out of me. They invested in it. Mm. They gave me the resources to explore my artistic sensibilities. Mm. And so as leaders, whether you work in an agency or you work in a brand, it's really important to one of your roles as a leader is to unlock potential in your employees. And sometimes that means reveals revealing the hidden talents that reside 
hidden away, mm. right? Within, within people. And how can you draw those out? Because at the end of the day, it's, it is biological, but it's also environmental. Right. It's both. Yeah. If I may ask, why did you wait until fairly recent to explore your biological past? You, you probably could have done it、yeah. much sooner. Well, the reality is, is we had, we had exhausted every avenue. Oh, you had? Okay. Yeah. And this is again before, because here's, here's the interesting thing. Oftentimes, I think people feel like I, I talk so much about the art and not the science, right? But the reality in this case is it's technological innovation and science and data and analysis that created 23andMe and Ancestry. Dot com, right?、Mm. So, so back in 2007, and、uh, we exhausted every possible way, right? And it's just in dif- different con-、uh, different states have different adoption laws, and you don't have access to the information, right?、Mm. And so it wasn't until these DNA companies、uh, came onto the, the you know, scene. That suddenly, and then keep in mind, just because I've joined a, a DNA site, it's only going to work if others that I'm related to also join. And so I just got really, really lucky that one day I got a message from someone that said, Oh my God, I can't believe I have an uncle I never knew about. And within a couple hours, we figured out that I wasn't her uncle. I was actually her brother. How, how, did, how did that feel to you? You know, I'm not going to lie. I mean, it's not like I had given up, but I had moved on,、mm. right? We had tried. We had tried a couple times.、Um, unfortunately, I didn't realize this, but my birth father had tried to find me as soon as I turned 18. He went to the adoption. Agency because, but for him to have connected with me, I would have had to、uh, write a note saying it was okay to contact me,、mm-hmm. right? On that. So he had tried to、uh, find me a couple times, but had no luck、mm-hmm. in any event.、Um, yeah. I mean, so you could imagine you're just sitting there,、uh, you know, doing what you do on a Saturday late morning, and all of a sudden you get that. Uh, direct message, right?、Mm. And, and so at first you're, you're a little bit confused, right? Because, okay, I'm an uncle and how, like, how does that work? But I think, yeah, I look by the end of the day when we circled back and we really all arrived at the same conclusion. And she uttered the words that, you know, your, my mom is your mom. Well, that, that hits you really hard, right? And so that set off、uh, then the journey of, because then, of course, there's going to be a process of you can't just assume that everybody's waiting for you, right? <laughs> People have been living their lives, right? <laughs> And so you have to understand that, okay. So、uh, thankfully, you know, for me, I had already. Raised my kids were already in college, right?、Um, I had already had a career.、Um, I so for me, 
what I was looking for is friendship and connection. And, and I think the timing couldn't have been perfect, more perfect uh, on that. So, but you also have to remember that my, my mom, you know, was, a, was 17 years old. She had to back then, if you got pregnant in high school, you had to go and live in a home, right? You were pulled out of your family. You were, you lived in the home until you had the baby and then you had to leave. So, and then you didn't tell anybody, period. Wow. Not even your siblings. Wow. So, so no one uh, was aware, no anyone. So I had to respect the time that needed so that uh, my mom could really uh, tell everyone in her own way, on her terms, on her timeline. And today we're just really, really close friends. Hmm. I mean, we, we text pretty much every day. We watch the same shows, right? Like literally. Yeah. Same movies, same shows. Uh, and um, she, she loves art and design. And here she is. Uh, she's still a floral designer, right? On that. So in any event, yeah, you just, I guess one of the other, you know, maybe learnings is it's just never too late. Mm. You know, mm. um, don't completely shut down. Mm. Whatever it is that you're searching for, um, there may be a moment in time down the road uh, on that where, you know, you, you, you achieve that connection that you're looking for. Yeah. Is your mother in Minnesota or where is she? She is. She is. And to be honest, she's nine minutes from where I grew up. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, and, and to think I went to college in South Minneapolis, you know, the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. And to think that while I was going to school, my uncle, who I met two years ago, was living right next to the school the whole time. Oh, wow. And you had people in the Minneapolis area thriving. And, you know, just imagine you're going to high school and college and all these people you're related to are just in the peripheral, but you just don't know that. Wow. Right. I think I told, I, I wrote this in the book that, uh, yeah. I, one of the stores I helped design was the Nike store in the mall of America. Right. Yeah. And that, that was my birth father's favorite store. Hmm. had no idea. Right. So you just, uh, you just, it's just amazing sometimes what is revealed, uh, as you go through life on that, if you're open to it. Yeah. Yeah. And your sister, how, how many years apart are you with your sister? Well, that's, what's interesting. She's, you know, 20 years apart. So that's why, that's why, the first thought was, well, this has to be my mom's brother. Right, right, right. But see, I was, when I, when I said, hey, look, look, I, cause what I, what I direct messaged back was, well, my mom was 17 years old. So today she'd be, let's just say 67. Right. You know, and I, and I put some clues out there and then ultimately, cause I didn't want to be the one that said, I think we're brothers and sister. Right. 
And so I essentially just laid out some, some details. And then my sister came back and said, wow, we're brother and sister. Did you realize that you and your sister were siblings, but you didn't tell her or you didn't know, but she's the one. Well, yeah, this, this, this all happened the same day. And so, oh, I see. I see. Yeah, we just, my wife and I, we just realized when we started to think about the, the math, right? Yeah. And when she, how old she was and when she graduated high school and where she went and all these things, we just, we just kind of figured it out. Wow. You, you could say we did some sleuthing, if you will. <laughs> right. And the reality is, is, yeah, I mean, there is just, you know, one picture specifically in social media where she was with her mother and my wife was like, oh, my God, that I mean, that looks like you. Wow. So so again, so it's just uh, it's happened really fast. And then uh, and then here we are. And uh, she was just we she was just out here visiting for for a few days. That's such an incredible story. And um, again, that was one of the favorite stories that I read in your in your book. And yeah, I could only imagine the kind of emotions that, you know, I mean, you talk about emotions in this book throughout, but it's a different kind of emotion that you would have come across. And um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, there's no, there's no playbook of meeting your parents as an adult, right? Mm. It's not like you go on Google and say, what should I do when we first meet? Right, 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 <laughs> right. So when we flew out there, I flew out with my family, both kids, my wife, mm. uh, and we agreed to meet in a park. Mm. And so my mom, my sister, and her husband were there to meet us. Mm. And yeah, so we we drove and we saw them from afar. And yeah, your 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 heart's kind of like pumping a little bit mm. more, mm. right? Uh, cause you're not, you're not quite sure, like what's the first thing you say or what's the first move. Mm. And so when we parked the car and we started walking towards them, she came running and just gave me a big hug. Oh, wow. So she, she broke that ice immediately. <laughs> right. And then the, yeah. And then it just went from there, yeah. uh, on that. And you never look, you never know. It just so happens. We're very much the same. It could have been. That's not always going to happen, right? Right. But we truly, uh, she just said when she was out here the last time, it's just amazing that we literally like doing the same things. Right. So. Wow. Yeah. Nature and nurture. It is. Yeah. It's, it, look, it's, it's, it's both, right? right? That's, that's why I'm very thankful as well for, for my parents for just investing. I mean, you have to understand giving, uh, you know, investing in art supplies, in drafting tables, uh, giving me private art lessons. Mm -hmm. And this is a family of seven on a teacher, a public teacher's salary. So you're living check to check, oh, right? Wow. And yet still finding it, finding resourceful ways to fuel what they saw as these talents, right? Wow. And so I learned a lot from that, just from a leadership standpoint yeah. and understanding, again, back to the idea of what's your role uh, as a leader on that. 
You said family of seven, so parents and five kids? That's right. Wow. Okay. And were you the only adopted child in the family, or were there other、um, adopted kids as well?、Uh, my sister is also adopted.、Mm. So, my sister, who's five years younger than me, so, so essentially my parents,、uh, yeah, they adopted two kids and had two kids, if you will. So, it was an eclectic family. You could imagine what those family photos looked like. Right. <laughs> and different races within the, the family. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Because my, my sister is also mixed race,、uh, right? So,、um, yeah, very、uh, back to this idea of, as I say,、um, you know, the innovation happens in the intersections.、Mm. And, and we certainly, from a diversity standpoint, had that covered. Right. Within the family, around the dining room table. Yeah. And in a city that, if I may say so, might not be the most diverse city. Minneapolis. Yeah. And, and I was, mind you, I was in a suburb, right? So they're just, that doesn't exist. And,、mm. and so I think again today, just through social media and the openness and of where we are today, you know, you're never that far from culture. For me, it really wasn't until the advent of hip hop.、Mm. And when, Hip hop came to the suburbs, right? And I got that first Run DMC record, right? Right. And I saw the movie Breaking and Breaking Two, you know, Breakdancing.、Right. And you started to see, see this.、Um, and all of a sudden, you know, your pride in yourself shifted because you were seeing both athletes and musicians that looked like you、um, have that level of influence and success. Wow. I, I kind of walk through life, I guess, is like each moment is、uh, a, a unique playlist in and of itself, right?、Mm-hmm. On that. I like that. Yeah. And、um, so back to that idea of we're a mosaic. And I think different moments call for, for different, you know, if you're, you're in the gym, you're going to need a little bit of energy. But if you're just relaxing on the beach somewhere, You want a sense of calm. So, yeah. Well, if I'm driving down,、uh, be, you know, in the middle of Oregon and the beauty of central Oregon, then it's probably going to be a, a, a different vibe. It might even be, you know,、um, rock from the 70s. It could be reggae, but it's create the pl- playlist based on, you know, what that moment is. Yeah. Each moment is a unique playlist. I like that. What is creativity to you, Greg? Creativity is, the, is conceiving an idea and applying that idea. Conceiving and applying. That's right. Excellent. It takes both. Yeah. Right. I think when, at least in the world of business,、mm. the definition of creativity to me is to s- create something that provides a benefit that, in, our, in my case over the years, help people perform.、Mm. To their highest potential. Those positive outcomes start because the team at the beginning was open minded. They were able to look beyond the surface of the subject. Like, what's the simple observations and assumptions you have about a person, right? And they're able to go beyond that because they're, they're open to doing so. And they go deep and listen and, and peel back the layers. 
to find something that's profound and insightful, right? And so you have to help your teammates understand that. You have to help employees understand that. And that is the role of being empathetic, right? Starts with being open to the way others experience the world, open to the way others see the world, right? And at the end of the day, as I said, innovation happens in the intersections and not just that when you intersect diverse expertise, it's diverse life experiences and perspectives. When that all comes together, I think that's where the magic happens. At the end of the day, you need inspiration to drive your creativity. And to me, curiosity is the rocket fuel for creativity. And I don't believe you can just wait for inspiration to fall out of the sky. Curiosity needs to be a dominant characteristic within your team, right? So you want a team that is not only looking within your category or sector, but the whole point is getting outside yourself and looking at inspiration in places beyond your own world and then bringing that in to your arena. And that's called innovation transference. This you know, phenomenon that happens when a company sees something happening somewhere else and they decided to adopt part of that and disrupt their own industry. And if you look at Nike's greatest innovation, you could say is Nike Air. And the reality is Nike Air came from uh, an engineer who was working on innovations for space exploration, exploration. And he was working on uh, astronaut helmets for NASA, but he felt it was transferable to the world of footwear and, and cushioning systems. And so part of it is seeing something like that happening, but also being receptive to be hear from others, right? And ultimately, um, the rest is history. And Nike Air became a, a revolution, right? It changed the way Nike running shoes uh, were were made and and how they helped athletes perform. So that's just one example. And there are thousands out there around the different industries, especially today, as you see so many entrepreneurs on that. But if you're, it's easy to get complacent. That's why I always say comfort is the enemy of creativity. And it's your job as a leader to instill curiosity within your employees and your team so that you have that energy and that culture of sharing and everyone's growing together and learning together. Excellent. That was part one of my conversation with Greg Hockman, the former chief marketing officer of Nike and the author of Emotion by Design. Since the first time that I met Greg over 20 years ago, I've worked on Nike for more than a decade. So I've been in the same meetings with him over time, but this was the first time that I got to sit down with him for more than an hour to have an in-depth conversation on various topics. In addition to the presence that I could feel over the screen, he also had a completely different level of wisdom that comes from age, that comes from years of experience. And I'm sure not only successes that he had, but 
a lot of challenges that he's faced working at Nike, working on so many different types of projects around the world. The kind of presence mixed with wisdom was a different version of Greg that I got to talk to 21 years later from my first encounter with Greg. So here are my three key takeaways from this part of my conversation. Number one, each moment is a unique playlist. Number two, innovation happens at intersections. And number three, creativity is a team sport. Key takeaway number one, each moment is a unique playlist. This was a little unexpected for me because it was part of my conversation with Greg and I discovered something new about him. I asked him why he hadn't looked for his family in the past, to which he responded, in fact, he had, but because of the lack of technology, he wasn't able to track down. It was only a few years ago that somebody reached out to him over the internet. Well, this person reached out to him thinking that Greg was her uncle, but it turned out that this person and Greg were in fact siblings. And that was such a, an, an unexpected story for me, but also for him. And I asked him how he felt about being reunited and discover new dimensions to his life and new connections that he didn't know that he had. I remember the tone of the conversation turned really warm and he smiled and he said that each moment is a unique playlist, referring to the fact that whether it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, or even 10 weeks ago, each moment in life has a, a certain feeling about it. And the music that you hear in your head might bring different types of emotions. And that kind of relates to the, the title of his book, Emotion by Design, that he is either directly or indirectly designing the playlist of his life at each moment of his journey. So key takeaway number one, each moment is a unique playlist. I thought that was a, such a, an eloquent and beautiful way of articulating, uh, appreciating life. Key takeaway number two, innovation happens at intersections. This is a point that resonated with me deeply because I also have existed at different intersections, either at intersections of culture, intersections of creativity and technology and design, um, and the the differences between different disciplines, different expertise, uh, or different points of view, um, those are the factors that create innovation down the line. One of the stories that he shared about innovations was Nike Air. Many of you know that Nike Air is one of the most popular sneakers around the world. But this part of the story I didn't know was the original technology of Nike Air came from NASA. Somebody at NASA had invented this air technology that packed air into this structure to create a certain kind of cushioning. And somebody at Nike saw that and thought that, hey, this could be used for the sneaker. And it was that kind of breaking the boundaries and looking for an application of something from a different industry or different discipline into a new territory and having that intersection of a technology and a design or an opinion and a culture and the, the merge of those two could create 
a tremendous kind of innovation. And Nike Air is probably one of the best examples of innovation that came at the intersection of two different disciplines. So innovation happens at intersections is a, a very simple statement that I related to very deeply and I appreciated hearing from Greg and articulated in this succinct way. Key takeaway number three, creativity is a team sport. This point, I can share the episode we talked about in the conversation. Back in 2002, I was working on a product called Nike Shocks, which is a new sneaker that Nike had introduced at the time. It was called Shocks because in the back of the shoe were these spring-like structures that would give the runner the shock absorption. So that's why it was called the Shocks. And the logo that I was using, that was given, that was designed by the Nike brand design team, and I was using to implement into the work that I was doing uh, for Nike at the time, was this uh, geometrical S-shaped uh, logo with two bars uh, at, bottom, at the top and the bottom looking like a spring. So that was simplified visual manifestation of the product's um, benefit represented as a logo. What I didn't know until my conversation with Greg was that Greg was the originator of that idea. He had sketched that logo uh, in his sketchbook and he forgot about it. He and his team went outside the company to hire a design firm to come up with a brand identity system for the Nike Shocks family. They explored, I think like 50 or so even more logo variations and they narrowed down to three or four different directions. And one of them was the initial sketch that Greg had done. What was even at a relatively young age when he was just a new uh, leader in that brand design team, he knew not to push his own design, but let the audience, in that case, Nike's various teams, who were reviewing the brand identity to decide which one to go with. And it was really the, the group that kept voting for the version that, that Greg had put forward. It wasn't Greg pushing for it, but having the team voice his opinions and naturally have the selection bubble up to the top. So I thought that was a very specific episode, but represented Greg's mantra, well, one of his mantras, creativity is a team sport. And even when he was in his early 30s, when I started working with Nike, and even though I wasn't in that specific meeting room, uh, I'm glad to discover that story 21 years later and realize that creativity is a team sport is a mantra that he may not have articulated back then, but he had lived through all his life at, the, at Nike. So to summarize, my three key takeaways from this part of my conversation with Greg. Key takeaway number one, each moment is a unique playlist. Number two, innovation happens at intersections. And number three, creativity is a team sport. If you're listening to this on Spotify, there's a Q&A field, so please do send us your questions and comments. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or any other app, and if you like our podcast, please leave us a five-star rating. It really helps, and we'd be so grateful. In the next episode, we continue my conversation with Greg and the focus is on taking risks in brand communication. I'm Ray Namoto and this is A Creative Mindset. See you next time.